0: Hi, welcome to Wither the Luniversity, Episode 3. I'm Adam Elwanger, and my guest today is Professor Eric Smith, who is Associate Professor of Rhetoric and Composition at York College of Pennsylvania. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about him. He is co-founder of uh, a site called Free Black Thought, which we'll talk a little bit about today. Um, he is a critic of, of so-called anti-racist pedagogy um, and CRT, um, or critical race theory. He's also a member of Heterodox Academy. Um, if you're interested, you can follow him at Rators of York. That's R H E T O R S underscore of underscore York on Twitter. Uh, Eric, thanks for thanks for joining me today.
1: Uh, thanks for having me.
0: So one of the things I was interested in in talking to you about is you and I are in the same field, which is a fairly small field. Um, And I thought maybe you could tell us a little bit about your training in rhetoric and composition. What drew you to that and what your work, your academic research in that area has has focused on to get us started here?
1: Well, uh, first, I'll say that, you know, I I think the field of rhetoric uh, and composition is rather large if you think about all the adjunct faculty and the uh, contingent faculty and the graduate students teaching four or four course loads of comp. Uh, you know, they, they, when you add those guys in, it's huge. Uh, but the people actually you know, doing the uh, majority of the publishing and things like that is relatively small. Unfortunately, the majority of the publishing and the niche uh, category of anti-racism is the kind of stuff I do not approve of. And uh, that is a major impetus for why I'm here today. Um, All that being said, could you repeat the question? (laughs) (laughs) Just what drew you to rhetoric and composition?
0: I mean, what sparked your interest in it early on and uh, that uh, and what your research early on before the sort of CRT took hold and things like that was about?
1: I went to graduate school to uh, get a master's degree in American literature, uh, focusing mostly on, um, you know, uh, creative nonfiction. You know, um, I'm doing more Emerson than Hawthorne, you know what I mean? Uh, more William James than uh, Henry James. Uh, but then I took a class on theories of the sublime, all right? So we're still not at rhetoric yet, but a door is being opened, right? Uh, we talk about, we, we, do, uh, we do Longinus in this class. And um, when I read Longinus, I was like, okay, so there's this, oh, wait, there's a rhetoric program? What am I doing here? <laughs> right. So I felt like I was spinning my wheels, you know, because I mean, no offense to English professors or things like that. But after a while, you're you're reading stories and talking about them. I, 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 and I know that's a simplistic way of looking at it, but that's how I felt. I felt like I could do more important, uh, you know, uh, things with rhetoric. Uh, so that's where I went. So uh, I finished my master's degree, uh, applied for the Ph.D. program in language, literacy and rhetoric. That was the official name of the uh, program, and that's that. You know, so uh, what what I saw in rhetoric is just a, an ability to analyze the world and our, you know, communicative dynamics, the way people were trying to analyze Chaucer, and um, I, I, I thought it was better to do the real world situation.
0: I had a very similar uh, experience getting sort of pulled into rhetoric from literature, and it felt the same to me. It felt like in in literature, what we often did was read this text. And then we usually didn't talk about things like aesthetics or form or style. We usually just sort of use the story as a springboard for a social critique. Right. Um, And I sort of eventually was like, why don't we just cut out the middleman and go straight to the social critique? (laughs) Um, Right. And so eventually I made a, a similar choice to you. Um, you're, you, you mentioned uh, the work of adjuncts earlier, and we should probably get back to that at some point. Um, but I wonder, uh, you, you um, I think, loosely could be called anti-woke now. Um, and you talked to me once in a, in a private conversation online about sort of an origin story that you had at a particular conference. I think this was a major conference in our field. And I wonder if you could recount that story for us. One thing that the guests on this program so far have shared is that they've had kind of this, I mean, for lack of a better uh, metaphor, an awakening to the problems in the university. Um, And I'd like to hear yours.
1: An awakening, not an awokening. That's right. Yes, yes, we have to be explicit about that. And I also appreciate the fact that for the first time, I am being interviewed by another scholar in rhetoric. (laughs) <laughs> you know, that's, that's the first time this happened. So, so uh, this, this will be interesting and I'm happy for it. Um, three years ago at the, arguably the flagship conference uh, in the field, uh, the Conference on College Composition and Communication, I attended the keynote address uh, put on by a uh, scholar focusing in anti-racist pedagogy uh, named Asawe Newway. And the point of his presentation was, You know, uh, white professors are inherently a problem. Um, You know, uh, teaching uh, standardized English or going about the uh, recognized habits of mind that are conducive to success, not just in college, but beyond all those things were a form of white supremacy um, because you were projecting it onto students of color who don't feel that way. Um, So, I mean, this is a very erroneous statement Right, And I'm, I'm, to be fair, I'm paraphrasing, but that was basically it, all right? Which um, is a common
0: and, position in our field.
1: Right, which is a common position in our field. So I went on the uh, primary listserv for the um, field, which is now defunct because of yours truly. <laughs> um, we'll, we'll get into that uh, momentarily. And I, and I said, uh, is this really the best way of going about doing this? You know, are we sure? Is it, are we doing this because it's just really hard to teach writing and we need another angle? Uh, do we really think this is going to, you know, uh, affect things positively? And the response I got to uh, that inquiry changed me, right? Something snapped, you know, um, even, I mean, all these responses riddled with logical fallacies. <laughs> you know are being applauded as the most brilliant thing ever i'm like really guys because that's wrong that's wrong that's factually incorrect that's just nonsensical and um and and initially i wasn't you know that straightforward i was trying to be civil i didn't realize i wasn't talking to a um a group of academics i was talking to a a group of uh it was a degradation ceremony and not a conversation i didn't realize that until it was yes i didn't realize that until it was too late um so I was taken aback by this. And then on Twitter, they're talking about me, right? And I didn't realize that until I was scrolling through Twitter as one does, you know? And, and I came across it and I said, oh, well, maybe I should try to set the record straight here, right? <laughs> that was turned into me stalking people, right? Um, so yeah, so all this stuff happened. And I realized, oh my God, this is way too far gone. I have to do something about this. I was writing a book at the time um, that had to do with, um, you know, um, uh, writing pedagogy uh, as it pertained to race and things like that. It had to do with that. But I revamped that book with like three months to go until the uh, deadline. I do not recommend that. Um, that's how adamant and, and passionate I was about this. That book turned into a critique of anti-racism and rhetoric and composition. Um, and, and in that, I, I, you know, talk about this incident, I talk about some of the scholarship and where it goes wrong, you know, where it goes right to an extent, but mostly uh, where it goes wrong and why, and I attribute it to disempowerment. That's being called empowerment, which um, led to my second book, not my second book overall, but the book after that um, called The Lure of Disempowerment, Reclaiming Agency in the Age of CRT. Um, which elaborates on the second chapter of that book that elaborates on empowerment theory, which I see as a, a very nice um, replacement or alternative to the current anti-racism I'm seeing, not just in my field, but in academia and beyond. So so that's uh, how I got here. It, it's it's the cognitive dissonance that 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 thread caused me, kind of, yeah, it, it changed my trajectory of my my um my career, right? My focus, you know, I, I'm all about this now. You know, I was I was going to I had just gotten tenure. I was going to, um, you know, work on the confluence of Buddhist philosophy and rhetorical theory, um, as it specifically pertains to a sect of Buddhism called Nichiren Buddhism, which is a, a Japanese uh, Mahayana Buddhist sect. Um, and, and I saw a lot of stuff there to do. I was excited to do it. And I was on my way. And then this happened. And so, I was like, I can't, I can't, I got to do this.
0: When we first talked about this, I was under the impression that this happened in a, in an oral setting, like at the conference. This happened in a textual setting yes. online. Yes. Now, let me ask you, you have to indulge my curiosity, right? When, when you engage these people and sort of said, hey, you know, like there, there's some problems with, with this idea of teaching and, and pedagogy were they aware that you are in fact a black guy or you know yeah. they were oh yeah they they were, they
1: were all aware
0: okay yeah, that's because surprising I, to me because yeah, I, I, like, I, yeah yeah it seems like you know it, in that cult right it seems that your status as a black man would sort of elicit automatic deference to your position
1: um well you would think so but then you get white people calling you a white supremacist <laughs> <laughs> and you realize that that's not entirely the case there's there's a right way to be black yes. and i was doing it incorrectly yes you know yes. and i had to be punished for that especially and, and, me right especially me because a black guy saying this that that has a level of ethos that is harder to uh refute so they they, they, they had to double down on me right that's why the degradation uh that's why the um struggle session was so intense
0: so it- um there's there's a lot of sort of black intellectuals who are very devoted to making sure that um black thought for lack of a better term stays on script Um, right and i wonder i assume that this was a, a part of the impetus for you founding uh free black thought in part to kind of provide an alternative or at least to to um maybe help people realize that there isn't this sort of uniform intellectual political consensus um, among sort of Black Americans and uh, kind of to break up the hegemony of, of sort of the um, left Black progressive standpoint. I mean, is, is that the idea? Could you talk to us a little about what you hope to achieve with the site and just tell us a little bit about the site in general?
1: Uh, Well, first, I want to say that I am a co-founder of um, Free Black Thought. There are several other people uh, involved. And um, I wasn't even there at the very beginning. I was there at the beginning, not the very beginning, when uh, this was conceptualized. Um, And, um, you know, uh, we came across each other and I said, you know, we said, you know, kind of, uh, you know, collectively, you know, I, I need to be a part of this, right? But I've been dealing with this since I was a kid. You know this. This is uh, new to a lot of people, but I, I I was dealing with this in middle school in the eighties. You know, I mean it, it's it's nothing new to me. This is by no means the first straw; it's the last. You know, which is why it made me totally change the direct uh, trajectory of my career. Free Black Thought um, focuses on showcasing the viewpoint diversity within the Black community. Now, I don't even like saying Black community. That is essentializing in my mind. But I say it because that's the term that, you know, people are familiar with. And as a rhetorician, you have to consider your audience and take what you can get, right? There are only (laughs) certain means of persuasion available to you, right, at particular times. uh, So you got to deal with that. So I do say black community uh, now and again. Um, But uh, that's what it's all about. We have a journal um, that also, you know, focuses on these things, but it also wants to, we want to make sure at the journal that we give voice to, You know, people who aren't represented in mainstream media, right? Like you said, there's a particular narrative. uh, There's a particular dramatist persona, right? And um, there are roles and, you know, you can only be cast in this role, right? You can only be cast in this role. That's that. That's the narrative. That's the script. Um, And a lot of Black people are like, I don't like that script. You know, I want to write a more inclusive script. You know, and um, I don't need every white guy to be the antagonist in this story, right? Um, so for people like that, you know, we have Free Black Thought. Uh, the website, which has a compendium of uh, text uh, you know, from fiction to photojournalism, um, uh, academic scholarship, obviously, uh, op-ed work, uh, that also drives home this uh, diversity of viewpoints within the Black community right? So that's, that's what we're trying to do there. And it's something that I'm passionate about, because as I said earlier, this is something I've been doing for quite some time. This is something I've been dealing with really since my age was in the single digits, you know? Um, but I, I started to realize it was a thing in middle school. And I remember telling myself, I can't wait until I grow up so I don't have to deal, deal with these idiots, <laughs> you know? When I grow up, everybody's going to have sense Right. And, and I don't have to deal with this anymore. I'll just let my merits speak for themselves. Right. And here we are. And, and that's another thing that really, really shook me during that email thread. You know, I'm like, they, they, they will never leave me alone. <laughs> you know, they, from, from fourth grade till now, they've been chasing me and they're not going to stop. It's time for me to fight back. And that's what I'm doing.
0: It's a very strange time. I think, especially for people sort of, older than 40 years old um i grew up in rochester new york and um i i remember one day on the bus there was a kid singing a song that used the n-word i remember that i didn't know what that word meant but i thought the song sounded cool um and i memorized it as they were learning it and at home i was singing it to myself and my mother said what'd you just say and i said i don't i don't know what i just said i just said it and You know, she explained it to me and she said, you know, like, you never say that word again. And I didn't. Um, And I was, I think, like a lot of people our age, your age, my age, people in that age range, you were brought up under this idea that doesn't matter. What matters is who a person, essentially the content of your character is it." it. And it now seems, especially in universities, right, that that default assumption has has been turned into exactly the wrong way to view difference. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think it's made it very hard to navigate these conversations, which is why I think in some ways, non-white intellectuals are going to have to lead the way because to critique it from any other ethos, right? A guy like me to say, look, this is dumb and it doesn't make sense, is that automatically feeds the it adds fuel to the fire rather than than cooling it, I think. Um, and so I appreciate the work you're doing there. It links in with your involvement with Heterodox Academy. Um, and Heterodox Academy has their meeting coming up at, at which you'll speak. Um, by the time that viewers are watching this or listening to this, it'll probably be in the past. But um, I think you are, a, I know you're a member of Heterodox Academy. I don't know if you're in a leadership position or not. Now, Um, but I am also a a member of that group Um, and their mission is is to sort of spread the gospel of viewpoint diversity and to describe the um, the value and importance of diverse viewpoints in an intellectual setting, because that kind of is the, the engine of new ideas and um, yeah. these things. So I wonder, could you tell us a little bit about your involvement with Heterodox?
1: Well, after the uh, infamous email thread I just spoke of, uh, I and uh, another person decided, well, we need a space where we can say things and think critically without being attacked. We need a space where we can actually be academics right? And not parishioners in some weird cult. Um, so heterodox ret comp uh, was created. Um, I wasn't the initial moderator, but I am now. Okay. So I guess I do have a leadership position in, in heterodox, but that's that's where that came from. That's where heterodox ret comp came from, that email thread in the fallout. So, so we're there. And uh, you know everybody in you know um, that email thread, and most people in the field think that heterodox is some right wing organization, and uh, we all have you know swastika tattoos, and we're out to get you and, and stuff like that, which is uh, couldn't be farther from the truth. Uh, the the demographics uh, lean left, right? I mean, we have people from uh, all over the spectrum, but it leans left. Um, but you know, of course, that's not part of the social reality they're dealing with, so i'm hitler that's basically uh how how this pans out but yes um i'm a i'm a part of a uh, heterodox academy moderator of heterodox uh Rec comp and i'll be um speaking next week at, at at this point uh june 14th in denver colorado with glenn lowry and john McWhorter.
0: Exciting.
1: and yeah to drive uh, home the um you know the political spectrum you know, Glenn's a, you know, a conservative, uh, John and I identify as liberals. So, I mean, that's all over the place and we're all black. So, you know, the whole point, I mean, by our mere existence on a stage together, we're making the point, uh, but we're also gonna talk.
0: So I should be clear, um, cause I had told you that I wanted to talk a little bit about Heterodox Academy. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, I yeah. want to be clear that you are not speaking on behalf of Heterodox Academy. These are your ideas about the organization, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. So this has been, I started out when I became a member of Heterodox Academy. I was very optimistic about the organization. And I went to uh, their meeting in New York City a few years back. And the feeling I came away uh, from is that the people who were there really didn't grasp the severity of the problem. Um, And and let me spell out like, like in what way. Uh, Okay. I think that heterodox's main mission is to kind of spread the gospel, like I said, of viewpoint diversity um, and its importance in academic or intellectual inquiry. I think that this presumes, one, that people in the university are unaware of the importance of viewpoint diversity, um, and I don't think that that's true, right? I think that Mm. they know that that's important to intellectual inquiry, but i become convinced, and I speak as a man of the right, um, You know, I've become convinced that they, the, the people who are prosecuting wokeness in academia are not interested in academic inquiry. What they are interested in is ideological indoctrination. Right. And since that is their interest, right, it, it doesn't make sense to create a space that's hospitable to intellectual inquiry and viewpoint diversity right? If what you want is to produce ideological zealots, then you're going to consciously create a space where there is a lack of viewpoint diversity. Sometimes I feel like heterodox academy assumes that if people would just realize how valuable that is well then they'd be more inclusive in these ways my point is they know exactly how valuable mm-hmm. it is but they're not interested in uh, open intellectual inquiry right and they're aware mm-hmm. of what that is they know they'd rather you know pursue their utopian vision of of social justice and sort of create culture warriors and if that's what you're going to do Viewpoint diversity is just a needless hindrance. Um, yes. Yeah. So I wonder how you'd respond to, to that critique.
1: Um, in several ways. Uh, the, the first way is to say that I look at heterodox as a refuge. You know, that's, that's what it is. I'm not, when I think of heterodox, I don't think, well, if we, with, if people would listen to this organization, everything would be okay. That doesn't, I, I gave up on talking to the quote unquote woke a long time ago. Right. And when I do talk to them, I'm really doing it for the people listening. Right. The people on the fence who don't really know, you know what's going on yet, uh, you know, to warn people before they fall into the trap that so many have already fallen into. Um, that's when that's why I, uh, I try to engage. But I, I'm done trying to convince them because, you know, their primary tactic is to not listen. You know, it's, it's not like they have the inability to not listen. They're making a concerted effort to not listen. That's part of what this is. And that goes way back to, um, and I, I, I feel less and less like a conspiracy theorist when I say this, which I, I guess is uh, okay. Uh, but that, that speaks to the, you know, communist tactics uh, that um, this derives from, you know, the Frankfurt School and the critical theory which spread out into legal studies and critical race theory and things like that. These are, these are explicit tactics right? You know, um, that Lenin, Trotsky, all these guys talked about, you know, Marcusa, they they, they all don't listen to them. No. Right? You know, and, and there's no way a hegemonic force is not trying to trick you. You know, the, the, there's no such thing as a good faith conversation with them. They're, they're, they're bad. I'm reminded of Wayne Booth's listening rhetoric. And um, he had various degrees of listening rhetoric. Listening rhetoric is supposed to be just, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt, listen to you, and sincerely try to understand what you're saying, and ideally, you would do the same for me. Um, there are degradations of listening rhetoric, and listening rhetoric C is, I'm only listen to, listening to you to find a way to trick you, right? I'm going to find the weakness and, and trick you, right? I'm not here to work with you or understand you. I'm, I'm here to get over on you, right? Um, they think everything's that. Yes. Everything's listening rhetoric C, or at least they're pretending to think that. Right, because they need to. They need to demonize us to the best of our, their ability so that they can win. Um, so I'm I'm done with them. Um, I think uh, heterodox can't do. I, I agree with you. Heterodox can't do anything with people like that. But what they can do is give people like us a place to actually practice, uh, you know, inquiry with things. Now, uh, we we probably agree on the fact that viewpoint diversity is a good thing. So there's that's not viewpoint diversity. <laughs> Ironically, right? <laughs> um, but it's still a space where I can actually feel like an academic mm-hmm. and, and not a heretic.
0: Yes. I've kind of embraced the ethos of the heretic. Um, you know, like, uh, I think uh, um, they're needed. And, and, and once you embrace it, I feel like you can speak some truths that otherwise can't be spoken. Um, yeah. yeah. So how did it get here? this is um the I, I ask the same questions since to some extent of everybody that i talk to and this is one thing i find myself thinking about a lot i mean you you touched on the frankfurt school you touched on um sort of uh communist methods of imposing hegemony and, and things like this and all that's true but but the takeover has been so complete in in my view, and happened so quickly. I was an undergraduate. Uh, I was a freshman in 1996, and I guess there were the. It was clear that the seeds of this, had were there, but it was so far off of of what it is now. And I wonder when you think about how did this happen? Like, what what makes sense to you? How do you understand that?
1: Oh, how did it happen? Well. I think a lot of this has to do with uh, the '60s counterculture movement and how you know a critical theory, derived from Marxist thought, was a foundation of that for a while, right? And it did leak into uh, black nationalism uh, to a large degree, which is uh, famously Angela Davis was a student of uh, Herbert Marcuse, who was a primary uh, figure in critical theory and this you know this Marxist. Uh, in France, the 60s yeah there's that right i mean there are a lot of different people um and and okay so let's stick with the critical theory thing um let's stick with uh, marxism uh using black people you know for their uh for their political purposes goes back 100 years it right trotsky trotsky talked about it there's a book about trotsky talking about it and it's not about trotsky it's his writing <laughs> right. Or, or his speaking. Um, I, I told you about the uh, Frankfurt School and, and, and Marcuse uh, and, and things like that. Uh, Lenin talking about what education should look like and how, you know, communism is the alpha and the omega. And however you can do that, do that. Everything's about that. So you're not teaching math. You're teaching math insofar as it can help you maintain communism. You know, you're teaching history insofar as it can make help you maintain communism.
0: Nothing outside so, the party.
1: Nothing outside the party. So you add nothing outside the party to, wow, Black people will make a great proletariat, right? I mean, we don't have to convince them that things are bad. They, they you know, they hate hegemony too. Let's, let's ride that wave, right? And you, you, you put those things together and, um, you know, you plant that seed and now it's a sequoia called critical race theory and anti-racism. So I, I think that has a lot to do with it. Um, obviously, there's, you know, you know run of mill racism in society and uh, people starting this movement in the 70s uh, who think that enough wasn't done in the civil rights movement and that um, things were taking a little too long, right? And these people didn't necessarily read Marx, right, or any uh, Marxist theorist, but they were on that wave. So there was a zeitgeist going on there, too. It's a very dynamic origin story. Uh, uh, as, as you can discern uh, from what I'm talking about, but all these things come into play and they're all relevant to the point, and I, I've been saying this a lot lately too, because it's true. Um, Lenin made a speech to the um, youth league, you know, the, the Russian youth league about education, what education should be like. And if you replace the word communism with anti-racism, it's Ibram X. Kendi. It's, it's, it's Kendi you know it's, it's like he played mad lib with this uh speech from lenin in 1922 right and 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 here we are so i mean it's it's not an exaggeration it's by no means a stretch to uh connect you know contemporary anti-racism to uh marxist thought it's all there you got to follow the not the money you got to follow the paper trail
0: So at this point, it's almost like these trends are self-sustaining in the sense that it's reached a critical mass that this sort of, like you said, you don't even need to read Marx. You don't need to read at all, really, because it's in the water now. It's, It's sort of just in the structure of the institution itself. So it seems normal. It seems like just the way things are. And this is one of the things that I think make it really in, intractable is, is um, it, it's taken on a status of, of the norm. Um, and so younger students, um, younger students who might one day enter sort of the university world as a profession, uh, have, have sort of suckled at the teat of wokeness since they were, I mean, before they came to college. Um, and they didn't even know it. Uh, wow. And so I guess this leads me to my next question. You, you sort of acknowledge that there's, there's very little that heterodox can do to sort of convert um, or deprogram these people. Um, and yet they are the people who hold power in American higher education today, um, both in, in the administration, at the staff level, at the faculty level, and the student level. So given these facts, can the university in America be redeemed? Is there a way to do it?
1: Um, Well, the way to do it is, well, first and foremost, to speak up. A lot of this has to do with the fact that people are too afraid to push back. If there is a pushback, at least that tension would change things. Would it be back to normal? No, but at least it wouldn't be this. (laughs) And people would see for themselves You know that not everybody is on board with this, including black people, right, including people of color, right, including, uh, you know, uh, gay and lesbian people who don't, you know, fall into the gender ideology that's being pushed right now. You know, they'd see that we need to model pushback. That's what we need to do. People need to see Oh, wait a minute. I'm not crazy. They are being idiots. You know, and this guy's pointing it out and, oh, okay. So I, I'm, it's, it's possible to not agree with them. Good, this is fantastic. The problem is not enough people are speaking out. Um, I'm speaking out. Um, I, I'm, I'm one of the few people, I, I think as far as I know, I'm the most consistent, you know, most, uh, consistent, uh, you know uh, uh, hater of anti-racist uh, pedagogy. Um, right now, some people, you know, say things here and there, but then they uh, back away for understandable reasons, but at least they're saying something most people are not and, um, you know, I mean, if you're, if you're a tenured faculty member five years from retirement and you don't like this stuff and you're not saying anything, dude, I mean, I, I, I've been quoting Dante or something attributed to Dante anyway. it's probably apocryphal but you know it's, it's the point that counts. Uh, and it, it goes something, no, it goes like uh, the hottest places in hell are reserved for people who, in the midst of a moral crisis, maintain the neutrality. There's a place in hell for tenured professors who don't say anything. Agreed. Right? And, and, and I, and I, and I want to say that to them, right? Uh, which makes me, it, it, I'll say this, This is slightly off topic, but not really. I'm less of a rhetorician now and uh I, i'm more into uh i guess what some people would call parisia right truth telling yeah well, well here's the thing you could truth tell with rhetoric but but the the thing is people know who and what i am you know that listening rhetoric c comes in oh he's a rhetorician of course he's saying this that and the other thing so my ethos as a rhetorician could be a um liability in some sense you know, I've been accused of uh, rhetorical gymnastics from other rhetoricians. And all I was doing was speaking so logistically, you know, um, you know, as straightforwardly logical as possible, right? So, I mean, if that's happening, I gotta be the guy who just said stuff, right? And, and I, I gotta purposefully be that guy. So, I mean, I'll be the asshole, right? You guys like maintaining civility, speak up against this, but you can maintain your civility. I'll be the asshole. You know who says what he needs to say. I'll take that on, right? So, I, yeah.
0: I'm glad you brought up Parisia because Parisia is is a form of of truth telling that we talk mm-hmm. about in rhetoric, but most of the time it's theorized as truth telling that exposes oneself to risk. Yeah, critical truth telling. Um, I think our woke enemies in the university see themselves as truth tellers but what they miss is that there's absolutely no risk in involved in shouting the the white dude you know on campus down as a white supremacist right yes all that does is score you sort of virtue points in in the campus hierarchy and i think that um i i think you and i have all you've already said you're tenured i'm tenured too and so There's less risk involved for me to say this, but I wonder, like, okay, so a 65-year-old dude is going to retire in five years. Like, he should speak, but he's really got no skin in the game because he's like, oh, these people are crazy. I'm out in five years, whatever, right? Undergrads don't dare speak out against this stuff because they know that their teachers are more rhetorically sophisticated and can shut Mm -hmm. them down, right, and also can impact them grade-wise graduate students, to some extent, are even less willing to take the risks inherent in, in speaking out because the, they have so much on the line in terms of their career prospects, their, their um, supervisors, in terms of their dissertation, things like this. Uh, you know, a tenure track faculty uh have very um high risk in speaking out. Um, and like you we didn't even talk about the adjunct thing, but we should, right? Adjunct work, um, those people are in such a precarious position financially, really holding on to academia right. by their fingernails that they'd be crazy to say anything, which basically leaves guys like me and you, people who are under 60, tenured, and a little crazy right? Like willing to lose friends over and and sort of lose esteem from colleagues uh, for uh, speaking what, what needs to be said. And so I guess I'd say like if the solution is speak up, well, it seems that I've said, look, there's like eight layers of the university that won't or can't do that and expose themselves to the risk. And then there's a layer of people like you and me. So talk a little bit to that.
1: Um, well, like I said uh, before, I have to, this is 24-7 for me, you know, and, and it has to be because not enough people, you know, I'm, I'm one voice, so I have to speak up often enough to seem like 20, right? Um, and, and, and that's the way it, it has to be right now. Uh, yes, there are people who, for very good reasons, aren't speaking up, but there are people who, for very bad reasons, aren't speaking up. They're not speaking up because they don't want, you know, the, 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 the faculty cocktail party to be uncomfortable. You know, you know they're, they're letting all this happen. They're letting black people, black students and faculty be infantilized and disempowered because they wanna have fun at a party because they don't wanna deal with any kind of drama from their uh, colleagues, you know? Uh, so I mean, when you put it that way and I plan on putting it that way a lot, you know, you really call them out for the, uh, Again, I'm gonna be the asshole, the cowards they are. Now, during that infamous email thread, I told you about at the beginning of our conversation, a common refrain what, for people who were you know, basically insulting me, not very much you know, uh, in argument, but a lot in ad hominem and straw man, I'll tell you that. They, they, were, they were commended for their bravery. They were commended for their, oh, you're so brave to do that. Can Zero we, risk. We, can we, can we acknowledge the brave? Zero risk. There isn't a safer place on the planet for them to say what they said. You know, Me, on the other hand, you know, uh, I'm a pariah now for what I said. If anybody was being brave, it was me. But that's not part of the narrative. The narrative is that the downtrodden person of color needs to be the hero and they're brave because they're speaking truth to power when that wasn't actually happening. The make believe going on here, right? <laughs> I mean, well, it's, it's, it's a tactic. They know, and this is what a lot of people don't realize, they know damn well they're, being, they're wrong. They know damn well what they're saying makes no sense whatsoever. That's not the point. The point is power. The point is, uh, or, or for many of them, acquiring dignity because they don't feel like they have any. Right. That's the point. And, they, and if they have to lie, cheat, and steal to do it, so be it, by any means necessary. Lenin is alive and well and in the hearts and minds of contemporary anti-racist pedagogues.
0: Well, this is what's going on, I think, with a lot of how quickly white people have bought into their own demonization, right, yeah. is yeah. that there's this sort of understanding that, well, you know, I mean, I have this culpability, this kind of blood guilt, um, and I can't get rid of that, but what I can do is be an ally, right? Mm-hmm. And, and what that amounts to is sort of um, uh, signing on to this sort of agenda of, of false empowerment um, so that you get your pass, so that you get your indulgence, and you get to be one of the good guys again, um, and that's that's sad. Uh, and I think you you said something interesting. It, it, it's just this contradictory world of of academia. I I went to no nothing fewer than four required faculty meetings for um, inclusion and uh, diversity training. Um, I work at a school that is about uh, 40% Hispanic, 20% Black, maybe uh, 15% white, uh, a large chunk uh, his, uh, Asian. We hold those meetings in the most inclusive, diverse place and safe space in America. And mm-hmm. this is a fixation. Uh, it, it's, it's almost pathological. Um, and and uh, you you sort of speak to that is, is that there's sort of just this refusal to to look at the reality of of the situation, um, but I think maybe that's feigned sometimes. I think. Yes. Do you think that they know that, or do you yes. think that they can't see it?
1: Um, well, many know it. Many can't see it. You know, and it depends on uh, where you're coming from here. I remember Kenneth Burke's distinction between the comic frame and the tragic frame. I'm reminded of that here, you know. um, Other people will call it, you know, cynics and fools. You know, um, there are cynics out there. They know darn well what they're doing. I have a, I all you have to do is read one page of Asal Nui's work, you know, okay, cynic. You know, this guy knows exactly what he's doing. You know, he's a car carrying Marxist and he's proud to say it. You know, I mean, and and there are other people like that too. And then there are people who just bought into the ideology and, you know, uh, you know, want to feel more secure than they do. Um, the, the feeling of security is a foreign concept or a foreign feeling for them. And they see this as an opportunity to acquire some security. So they're they're all in, right? So you have them as well. Um, although this is also probably apocryphal. Uh, it's attributed to Lenin a lot, but youthful idiots, <laughs> you know? Uh, we have people like Asao Nui and then we have the youthful idiots following him. And then you have me laughing at both of them.
0: Yep. Wow. Well, I appreciate the work you're doing enormously. I wish that I could be in Denver to hear you talk and to hear uh, McWhorter and Lowry. Um, And uh, I hope that I get to see you face-to-face at some point in the future if you dare set foot on on a uh re- the floor of a rhetoric or composition conference it would be fun to see the reactions to them of you and I together at one
1: it sure would <laughs> it sure I, I just I RSA was an hour away and I didn't go I was just too busy I was doing podcasts and and, and things like this and you know but you uh as much
0: you, I, you know what you missed you
1: know what I yeah I, I, I know I know what I missed I know
0: um, All right. Well, Eric Smith of York College of Pennsylvania, um, thank you so much for talking to us.